Okay. We're rolling. What's up? How are you, Rob? I don't know. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> That's great. That's great yeah. to hear. That's all I got. I don't know what's what's going on. It's it's jacket season here in Canada. It's one of my favorite times of year. We got through our oppressive heat wave. I'm got I've got the jean jacket out, the Canadian tuxedo they call it. Okay. I'm I'm in my element right now. I'll tell you that much. Maple leaf casual. Yeah. It's nice. This is what we do up here. We've had a lot, nice week of discourse in Canada about uh, our parliament giving a. a nice standing ovation to a literal nazi which was really something else it was really something else jordan (laughs) you know we had a really good conversation with Derek davison earlier this week about that whole saga uh i just i can believe it but i also can't believe it it always goes back for me to this assumption that you have repeatedly pushed back on that Canada's our more reasonable neighbor <laughs> yeah. to the north. But we're seeing in all of these issues, whether it's, you know, gender, whether it's working class issues, vaccines, and now, you know, support for Ukraine and also kind of whitewashing Nazi history, they're, we're not too dissimilar. Not at all. No. I think there's, uh, like, this is the thing that I've been, as long as I've been sort of podcasting and talking about this uh, publicly, have been kind of trying to make this case to people. Uh, that Canada is actually a deeply reactionary uh, country. And it might be, maybe it's a little less brash. Maybe it's a little more hidden under kind of a veil of like civility or politeness. But when you peel that away, you see something very nasty under the surface. And, um, you know, this this whole incident with this this Nazi in our parliament, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible for me because it's something I've been talking about a lot, this kind of dark history that we have, especially when it comes to our relationship to fascism. And this connection between Canada and Ukraine. This is something I've been I've been learning about and talking about for a couple of years now. So it was incredible to see this moment um, happen, which really revealed that to the entire world and became this big international scandal. And I was as much it's made me feel somewhat insane seeing the the historical revisionism and the the open Nazi apologia that we've seen a lot online since that time, people making all these kinds of excuses. Well, you know, uh, for people in Ukraine, you had, they were, they were occupied by the Soviets and they, they had, they were, had no choice but to join these SS units and uh, commit massacres against civilians. You know, just people like online, like using their real names and identities saying this kind of thing. It's really alarming. You know, maybe a couple of years ago that wouldn't have been as acceptable to do as it is now, but so as as freaky as it's been and alarming as it's been, it was also very, very satisfying to see this this moment happen and to see the entire world take notice. You know, you watch Zelensky's speech from Friday and you see Trudeau and they're just beaming and Christia Freeland. This is like the culmination of her whole life's work. I have never seen this woman so happy. She's glowing. She's beaming. She's triumphant. She's She's applauding Zelensky and she's applauding this Nazi guy. Just having a great time. By the way, Christy Freeland, this expert in Russian and Ukrainian history, um, who apparently doesn't know basic facts about who was fighting the, the the Russians during World War II, but I digress. Anyway, it was just really incredible. She was having just the absolute best time of her life. And then to see that all completely blow up in their faces, you know, Trudeau and the, his whole regime, the Trudeau regime, like they're trying to turn the page on all kinds of scandals. 
people are upset about inflation and the cost of living and housing and all the various things that uh, he's kind of overseen uh, over the last couple of years. And it's like, we nailed, we knocked this one out of the park. We did this great speech. Everyone's happy. Everyone's applauding. We love it. And then it just <laughs> blows up into this massive, embarrassing scandal. And like, we've been so supportive of Ukraine. And so Canada has been banging this drum of, of the nonstop ironclad support for Ukraine and arms transfers to Ukraine. And the thing that Canada now is responsible for the entire world kind of like paying, paying attention to this history. I saw an article on BBC being like incident in Canada has reignited conversations about Ukraine's Nazi past. And it's just, it's, there's just something very satisfying about, about the whole thing, even though there's definitely aspects that have made me feel completely insane as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The conversation with Derek we had earlier this week on this, I thought was really great and seemed like a lot of listeners enjoyed it and a bunch of people yeah. subscribed to listen. And we really appreciate that because that's what helps keeps this show going. And if you want to hear that conversation and every other premium episode we've done, you get an additional episode every week as a thank you for subscribing. You can head on over to insurgentspod.com. Dot com For as little as five bucks a month, you can get access to that episode and more. And like I said, you keep the show going and we really, really appreciate it and thank you. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much to everyone that subscribes to this program, allows us to keep uh, doing this thing. It's been, a, it's been a great run. We couldn't do it without our, our wonderful and beloved paid interns. Uh, so <laughs> thank right. you to each and every one of you. And we got a big right. episode coming up today too we got all this is a ambitious this one this is a blockbuster episode yeah we've got two guests today two interview segments on two very important pressing topics so ben meckler a writer and producer who is in the wga joined me to talk about the wga strike and their success in that collective uh, effort we go through some of the details and what they won and kind of what that victory and what that whole collective action means to him, the lessons he took from that, the joy he f- he found in seeing his friends and colleagues who are just getting started in that industry, realizing at their meeting when they went through some of these new components of their contract and of this collective bargaining agreement, that their life will now instantly change for the better and provide for a you know, a, a modest but sustainable and secure living in this industry. So really, really great conversation with Ben. And Direct action gets the goods. Who would have thought? <laughs> uh, and also Dave Weigel of Semaphore joined us to break down the GOP debate. This was a ton of fun. We got into obviously Christie's Donald Duck moment, but some of the other factors at play here, kind of what they're jockeying for, how they took shots at Vivek, how they came ready for him after being kind of pushed around and had their time sucked up by his opportunism and a whole lot more. Uh, Rob, what did you think of that conversation with Dave? It was great. I mean, I always appreciate Dave's analysis. Uh, he's right there in the thick of things. He, he's one of he's been one of the best political reporters in America for a long time. So, uh, really great to get him to break the stuff down. It was a, it was another very silly and ridiculous debate. And so, Dave is a great guest to uh, to talk about that. And we were just all we were all so blown away by Chris Christie's uh, zinger, his Donald Duck instant classic. Donald Duck zinger 
I think that was the main takeaway from this conversation that we all just had to doff our caps to this man and this, this genius wordsmith for this moment. It was really, <laughs> really wonderful stuff. I mean, I knew the writers were back, but I didn't yeah, know they would get right back away. so quick. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. As soon as the new deal is in place. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Well, let's, let's get into it. Let's do that. And you can hear both those conversations coming up right after this. joined by Ben Meckler. Ben is a writer and producer, and Ben's joining me to break down the WGA deal. We've covered the strike for the past couple months. Now, Ben is here to talk about the deal. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Thank you so much for uh, having me. I am tired and elated. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's that's a good, yeah. that's a good way to feel in this moment. I think so. So <laughs> we'll get into what what's in this deal how you feel about it, and just kind of how we got here. But could you give folks a bit, a bit of background uh, who you about who you are, what you do, and kind of your role in the WGA at large? Yeah, happily. Uh, so I am a uh, film and TV writer. Um, I've been in and out of the WGA for probably eight or nine years, I think. Um, I write both live action and animation and animation uh, traditionally something we're working on um, isn't covered by the WGA. So when I've had long stretches in my career of uh, running animated shows or, or writing on animated shows, uh, I've had my WGA membership lapse, move into the animation guild and then back to the WGA uh, in the last couple of years as I've been doing more live action uh, film and TV. Um, so I'm a, a longtime member. I'm also a member of IATSE through the Animation Guild. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I think, I think my membership, uh, to the WGA restarted maybe like, a, I don't know, six months before the strike started. <laughs> um, and my, it, my careers worked out in a way where like, I think my Animation Guild health insurance lapsed, uh, as the strike was starting and my Writers Guild insurance kicked in. Um, so, uh, yeah, man, you know, just, a just a rank and file member who hopefully won't come off as too stupid when I try to run through, uh, <laughs> the insane deal that we got through, uh, through this labor action. Awesome. Awesome. Before we get to that, yeah. we have to ask you about something even more important. And this is something Fantastic. that we ask. Fantastic. <laughs> this is something that we ask all of our guests just so we know who we're dealing with and really whether yeah. the conversation should continue. But Ben, where was I on January 6th? Well, we already know that. We've got the footage. Okay. So. Great. <laughs> ben, ben, are you a gamer? Oh, yeah, man. I got okay. a whole podcast about Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Amazing. That's great to hear. Uh, yeah. I haven't played the new one yet, but the footage looks just unbelievable. Yeah, it's photorealistic now. Um, I have played it. I mean, for, uh, my, my interest in Mortal Kombat is... Uh, almost entirely narrative they've continued to have one uh storyline for close to 30 years now um and i have followed it since i was <laughs> you know four years old um and, and mortal kombat 3 dropped um so uh 
Yeah, uh, as as a as a fan of the ongoing storyline, um, truly an unhinged, wild ride uh, in story mode for this game, and also like yeah, it's, I I don't know that any video game has ever looked as good as this one. It's it's kind of wild. My wife always makes fun of the faces in video games that I play because uh, they all look like weird, deformed action figures, even though uh, technology has advanced so much. Um, but that one, she's like what did they do? They're like, well, literally motion capture. They can do this for any video game, but uh, it looks pretty amazing. And it's fun to play, especially for someone who's not actually that good at playing video games like I am. You know, what a game to have photorealistic graphics for. I got, I saw a clip yeah. of, <laughs> of, of a uh, fatality where someone's head mm-hmm. just gets sliced in half. And it just, it, yeah. I, I'll spare the details for some of the more squeamish listeners, but really gruesome and, and really uh, really violent it sounds stuff. like a more mild mild one that you that you watched i've yeah. seen some truly wild wild stuff in my in my 10 or so hours banked in this game <laughs> <laughs> um let's get into the the wga action and i'd say successful yeah. strike so writers went on strike a few months ago now and you know folks who were supportive were told hey this could last a while and it did. They were trying to, you know, stretch people thin and hopefully make the WGA acquiesce on some of their demands. But that did not seem to be uh, that did not seem to be what happened. So for people who are generally unfamiliar or maybe have kind of been paying attention but don't know the full details, could you talk about, you know, what were some of these core demands that writers were making, issues that were arisen, especially with streaming and residuals not uh, being distributed fairly from from streams and the streaming platforms. Talk about what prompted this, and could you describe kind of the last couple months how you felt, how uh, your your fellow workers felt? Yeah, um, well, similar to uh, my friend Olga, who you had on as a guest right around when the strike started, I got into this business um, around twelve or thirteen years ago, um, just as things were really transitioning uh, into it being primarily a streaming business. Um, for television than ultimately for film and, and kind of, I've, I've seen the whole baton pass. Um, and as has been well covered, I think on your show and also in the news, um, a lot of protections that writers, uh, have traditionally had, um, have kind of faded away. There's been, um, obviously huge growth in how many shows are made. Um, but that, uh, sort of safety net has thinned out and the, the pay has kind of spread out among the sort of explosion in writers who've been able to break into the business uh, in such a way that suddenly a lot of writers who um, broke in and, and even worked all the way up to like showrunner level, um, like like I have on, on the last show I worked on, have um, honestly found it hard to maintain a living in, in Los Angeles where you kind of have to live uh, to do this job. You can also live in New York kind of the exact same problem um so uh so um you know we we haven't had really since streaming took over as like the primary place that a lot of content goes uh we haven't had really residuals i've never received residual payment in my life um which is traditionally how writers were able to sort of survive between jobs because as everyone knows it's a very competitive business and uh every job you get is sort of a miracle you're competing against a million people and, um, you know, if you get more than one job in a year, you're extremely lucky. And it used to be if you got that one job in a year, well, that's great. You 
know that you're going to be sustained the rest of that year on residuals and um, on you know good payment for for pilots or or feature sales that you might make or development money that you might get to develop uh, something that might potentially become a television show. Um, there are a lot of other streams of income kind of between your your regular uh, traditional work, like your weekly pay as a, as a TV writer or your um, larger payments as like a feature writer throughout, through that process. Um, and just a, a lot of, a lot of, honestly, like that financial safety net uh, has just completely fallen out and disappeared. And so I think um, a lot of the things we were fighting for in this, uh, in this negotiation involved trying to put back um, some of the protections that used to make this uh, sustainable career when it was much more affordable to just like live in general and live in Los Angeles and that we need in order to make writing a sustainable career uh, now or else it just, it just won't be. Um, honestly, there were so many different points at which we were trying to attack this problem. Um, and I don't think anyone thought we were going to get everything. And, and I'm, I've come out of this kind of feeling like we did. So it, it's hard to talk about all the different ways that we were trying to uh, achieve those goals. Um, but everything from like raising minimums to ensuring that writers rooms, um, would have to have a certain number of writers because the size of writers rooms were dwindling. I, I myself dealt with situations where I would be in writers rooms where every writer was responsible for writing like, uh, eight or nine episodes in like a very large batch, like multi-season order up front. And you wind up in a situation where everyone's stretched so thin because you're working on so many different scripts and so many different stages of production that it, it creates real problems. So um, sorry not to ramble too much because it's, it's a really big, <laughs> big and multifaceted issue. But um, we were trying to raise our minimums. We were trying to ensure that writers' rooms would have uh, a minimum number of writers guaranteed in the room, both to ensure that writers were being employed and that the job of writing these TV shows wasn't just completely untenable and running these TV shows. Um, in addition to all of that, uh, there's also artificial intelligence, which obviously was like one of the main headlines. Um, I think in, in sort of the broader news that everyone was covering, um, which is basically, you know, we, we've got this burgeoning technology. We don't know what's going to come with it, but it was very clearly something that, uh, a lot of uh, it showed on Twitter, but also <laughs> studios were interested in finding a way to use to sort of, um, you know, replace writers, replace artists, replace creatives. And so figuring out how to curb that now um, was something big that we were fighting for. Uh, feature writers were fighting for better pay structure because when you sell a movie, you can often wind up in a situation where you get like half of the money up front, but then the job of actually turning in a completed screenplay stretches out for a year or longer. And suddenly it's not enough money to live off of and you're trying to get other jobs and that's slowing you down finishing writing that movie and then you never get to the end of the rainbow and get the rest of that paycheck. Um, so putting like certain steps in there so that people would get paid somewhat regularly throughout that process um, and would be guaranteed rewrites and extra steps that would kind of sustain you um, beyond the initial sale. Um, streaming residuals is a big thing we were fighting for. <laughs> um, that's never, that's something that's just sort of never, we've never had um I guess a system where, you, you know, used to be uh, television show would make a lot of money for running commercials on the show. And then the show would rerun and rerun. And every time it would rerun, the studio would make obviously more money for running more commercials on it. And then the writer who created the show or who wrote the episode would get a piece. And that was a way that uh, writers were able to sustain themselves between jobs. That obviously went away when streaming had no commercials and, and wasn't as regulated as television or like regular television. So we were able to figure out a way to put in a, 
success metric for um, streaming shows that did really well or captured huge audiences. There will now be a bonus residual uh, for the writers, for the creators. Um, a lot of stuff, man. And, and we got a version of all of it. <laughs> yeah. And you lay out all of these different issues and various yeah. facets of the industry that really needed to be modernized and catch up with how the industry operates now. And I think it speaks to the necessity of you all, you know, being tough at the bargaining table, demanding these things because you can't, like you're saying, sure. If you wrote on a program that was syndicated 10, 15 years ago, maybe, maybe more like 15, 20 years ago, but like like, (laughs) you would be, you'd be set. And if that, like, if it carried on for a while, you'd be set for a very long time. You can't do that now. Like you're saying, you didn't, you haven't seen a residual. There were people, I think it was, um, Aaron Paul said he hadn't seen any residuals from streaming of Breaking Bad. I mean, that's one of the, the biggest TV shows in recent history, which is just crazy. And that that's a that's a particularly complex situation too, because he was referring to like Breaking Bad being sold to uh, Netflix essentially for stream, or like the the rights to stream the show being sold to Netflix. And that's a situation where like, well, there there is like a there's a structure that probably needs additional change in which like um, everyone got a check for sure when that initial deal was made for Netflix to start streaming Breaking Bad, but um, a billion people watching it, or like what happened with Suits, Suits suddenly became like a phenomenon during the strike and a zillion people were watching Suits. Um, that level of success, people do not, yeah, they don't get uh, a check for it, but they did get a check when um, the show was essentially like shopped to a new platform to air so that's a complicated thing that i feel like is, has been so hard to also report on mm-hmm. uh in the news that we we have not addressed a way to work around that necessarily our, our success-based streaming residual will be specific to shows made by like netflix is netflix will pay those checks based on netflix shows not on stuff they license like uh breaking bad so that still hasn't been addressed and, and may never be addressed um but uh sorry Another little nuance. No, that's okay. But I mean, it it speaks to the complexity uh, of of the industry, how badly writers especially have been getting screwed and left out of, you know, these deals or any any sort of payments. Um, And again, I, I think it really underscores why you needed to do this, because, look, it may seem to some people like oh it's a cushy job it's fun because it's it's interesting it's a unique type of job it's a very interesting and alluring industry overall but you're still working you're just doing a different form of work than somebody who works at an office or somebody who works at a factory like you're still working and i i feel like entertainment unions always get derided especially by conservatives but like they don't get treated with the same sort of uh, importance or significance as like a UAW. Now you have, bi- you know, there's bipartisan consensus. You can argue that the right is a little hollow in how they're trying to show sympathy with uh, UAW workers, but it's it's so it's treated, yeah, it's treated differently, <laughs> yeah, right? Um, so, so, but you, but you guys, you won. You, you've reached a deal with the the studios and the streaming platforms. Could you give us an overview? I mean, some of these things that you mentioned are are in there, right? Uh, all of the things. That- <laughs> <laughs> um i uh i mean you know for artificial intelligence we got a lot of great protections um we we got it basically locked into our contract forever that, that ai can't write 
uh, or rewrite literary material. So you're never going to be able to credit AI or take away a human writer's credit because AI worked on a script or generated a script. Um, AI generated material can't be used to undermine a writer's credit is basically how it was, how it was phrased. Um, writers have the ability to use AI technology if we want to like, I don't know, I can't imagine a reason a writer would use it to be, <laughs> to be honest, but um, that, that ability to use it as a tool is there, but um, companies cannot ever ask us to use it or force us to use it for a rewrite or a polish or, or, I don't know, to generate 10 ideas to kick them for a meeting. Um, companies have to disclose to us if they're handing us material that has been generated with AI. So uh, they have to tell you if they're like, hey, here's a screenplay we want you to do a rewrite pass on. Um, if it's them basically loading like a book they've licensed into chat GPT and saying, barf me out a script, idiot. And then <laughs> they're handing us like a hundred page script that looks like it was written by uh uh, by someone who'd never spoken the English language before, they they have to tell us like, hey, this was we had AI make this, um, and we have the right to not work on it at that point. Um, and then I think there are some vaguer protections in there that are basically like, yeah, we can sue each other if we break <laughs> if we break these rules or go too far out of bounds. Um, and yeah, as, uh, the problems I was talking about for feature screenwriting, we got all that stuff. You now have a guarantee that if someone buys a script from you or you get hired to write a script, you will also get. Uh, to do a rewrite, so long as you are being paid uh, the minimum or two hundred percent, two hundred percent of the minimum for a feature sale uh, or higher or less. Um, just to clarify that real quick, and something I feel like also gets kind of lost in the news cycle about all this is that we're negotiating like minimums. We're negotiating the protections for the most vulnerable writers. We're not negotiating like what Aaron Sorkin's going to make at all. We're negotiating protections for Aaron Sorkin that will protect him in his future and his career, but like. Really successful writers, their agents and lawyers are already negotiating things that are far, far beyond any of the numbers or protections that are listed in this. This is really about people who are just getting started. Like uh, basically every deal point would have like fully changed my life if it had happened uh, before I started my career in the last like 10 years, just in terms of like how much money I would have made and like how protected I would have been, how involved I would have been in some of these projects. And um uh, it's just, I, it's, it's hard to say how huge some of these things are. We now have guarantees codified of, uh, minimum writers that have to be in a writer's room. There's also protections for development rooms, which are kind of a newer thing. Basically they'd have these really short, they were calling them mini rooms, really short writer's rooms, um, to sort of write like a pilot and maybe the first few episodes of a show before deciding whether or not to green light the show and do a full writer's room. So I know a lot of writers who like, were excited to get hired into onto any project during a year, but it was like a couple of mini rooms and they did, they lasted, you know, four weeks, six weeks, three weeks, eight weeks, not like really long enough um, to be a real job, but kept, kept them from accepting a longer term job or, or we're now kind of replacing what used to be like a 20 week, 30 week real job um, with better pay protection. So we now have a bunch of language um, defining those rooms and and putting up walls for, uh, what you have to get paid for those rooms, how long they can last, guaranteeing that if you're in a mini room for a show and it gets a green light, you'll be in the writer's room for that show. Um, just a lot of protections for feature writers, for TV writers, uh, all the AI rules, um, that new success-based metric. I think uh, I don't need to get into the numbers and the nitty gritty because I, I also think it's like kind of hard to understand when we already don't know how many people are watching yeah. any given show. But basically, like the streamers will have to tell the WGA. Um, 
how many people are watching these shows. And uh, if a certain number of people, I think it's if 20% of the subscribers for a streaming service watch a show in the first 90 days that it's up, um, which seems to be like a pretty large number of the movies and shows that these streamers are self-producing because it's only the ones like for Netflix, it's only stuff Netflix makes for Disney, it's only stuff Disney makes. Um, you'll get like a, a bonus, a residual bonus. Um, there's huge increases to, to a lot of weekly rates, residuals. Um, Something I want to say, too, that I also think, like, to me, really helps define the, the breadth of how much we achieved by being tough, by holding out um, throughout this strike. There, there are two deal points in here that we got that have been problems since before, I mean, honestly, I, I, before I was born, that have been problems, like, forever in the writing profession that we finally got in here. Like, these are two deal points. We have been trying to to figure out in every negotiation for forever. And on top of all these new protections, many of which people said we would never, ever get, including the people we were negotiating with on the news publicly. Um, we got, so, so staff writers, the lowest level you could be as a writer on a television show. It's like the entry level job. Um, when you write on a TV show, you get your weekly paycheck while you're working on the show. And then when you write a script that, will eventually become an episode of television that that studio will make money off of over and over and over again. You get on top of your weekly rate, you get a script fee for reasons I'll never understand until this negotiation. If you were a staff writer, if you, if you had that entry level job on a show, you just didn't get script fees, even for the episodes you wrote. No reason because you, you'd probably be writing one or two episodes of a show. Um, you just wouldn't get script fees. You just wouldn't get them. Um, whereas every other writer at every other level on that show would get an extra paycheck, a pretty good paycheck every time they wrote an episode of television. As a staff writer, you just wouldn't. You got your weekly paycheck, and that was it. You're supposed to be happy with that. Every negotiation, we have tried to get script fees for staff writers. On top of everything else, we got it in this negotiation. And um, something that affects me personally, I'm part of a writing team. Um, that means I have a writing partner. We write everything together. We get hired together. Um, there's a lot of nice things about that. You kind of have your own mini writer's room of two. You're working on everything together. You're workshopping everything together. Everything has an interesting voice because it's coming from two people's personal experiences and brands. Um, the, the caveat is that you get paid the same as a single person. You have to split it. Um, so that, you know, sucks. Um, but that's the way that it is. So I'm a writing team. I get paid, you know, I basically make half on every job as like a single writer does. Um, but huge issue with that system on top of the obvious one um every show you work on you're earning uh from the writers guild health insurance and a pension that you'll get when you retire um and you get a certain contribution based on how much you're making what the project is a lot of different factors writing teams were also splitting that until now which <laughs> means that my writing partner chris amick and i would have to sell twice as many projects or get hired on twice as many jobs um, in order to qualify for health insurance every year, uh, we'd have to earn twice as much money. And um, our retirement accounts at the end of our careers would be half of what they'd be if we were, if we were, you know, a single writer, a single writing entity. Um, that's also something that they've tried to fix forever. We fucking got that too. That's going to change <laughs> my life. That's literally going to change the rest of the course of my career in my life. As long as I'm working as a writing team. Um, 
and and every writing team forever after. So um, I just the, the breadth of what we achieved here is to me truly staggering when you think about the fact that not only did we get all these things that like no one had ever asked for before, that no one thought we were going to be able to get because they were too groundbreaking and too new. We also got things we'd been fighting for for decades um, on top of everything else. I just think that's amazing and beautiful. I'm so happy, so ecstatic about that and so proud of what we achieved. I would say like, um, you know, look, there were some dark nights of the soul, friends and I just talking and and being out on the picket line after weeks and weeks and wondering how uh, our employers could like put us through this um, for seemingly no reason. And, you know, listen, I still kind of feel that way. At the end of the day, it took all of what, like seven days total of negotiating, but there was 130, 140 days in between of just people out there, you know, broken hungry and, and walking the picket line and fighting for what they deserve. Yeah. Um, but uh, I really did feel like the sense of solidarity and pride never wavered. And I think a big part of that came from the fact that throughout writers took care of their own. Um, if, if writers really needed to, they had access to uh, very generous, very helpful loans um, they could get from the union um, that you know, were interest-free for massive periods of time and then and then very, very fair with huge payment plans after the fact to make sure that they were uh, affordable for people who just basically needed these loans to kind of cover their living expenses while they were on strike. Um, and uh, obviously people like Drew Carey, who's a fucking saint, um, provided food for people every single day. I don't know if this is a real number. I heard, so Drew Carey was paying, for anyone who doesn't know, paying the tab for any one of the WGA card to go to two different restaurants in LA. And I believe one in New York um, from the second the strike started until literally the second it ended. Anyone. I've, I went to Bob's big boy, one of the restaurants where he was doing this um, ate a whole meal. And then at the end they would come with the check and I would just show them my WGA card and they'd go, okay. And I'd leave because <laughs> Drew Carey was just paying for it. I don't know if this number is real. I heard, I heard his bill was like, half a million dollars at each restaurant that's crazy he did not look for he did not look for praise he wasn't like on twitter all day talking about what a good dude he is he didn't say a fucking word other than hey food is free at these restaurants now and hey food is free until the strike ends at 1201 tonight enjoy everyone go get one last meal best dude in the world the round of applause he got at the wga meeting last night where we talked about what's in this deal that we're all about to vote to ratify um the applause he got was like huge. People were crying. They were just like so <laughs> happy. I mean, it was, it was incredible. Let's, let's, uh, before, before we wrap up, like, could you talk about just how you feel and how, like that sentiment in the room when you all went through what you achieved and what you got together through this collective action and the lessons you learned from this process and what you hope other people realize about collective bargaining and being part of a union? Unbelievable pride and um hope which i think you know look we live in a very like irony poison time um and also i think our generation and everyone younger than us has dealt with like hope being shattered many many times in many ways but knowing that you know i work with a lot of young writers um and i've had a pretty like i've gotten very lucky and i've had a tough road getting here because of the ways that the industry has changed uh over the last uh, decade plus. Um, I work with a lot of young writers and a lot of writers that are trying to break in. And I thought about them so much last night because um, I just could not stop thinking about how much everything was going to change for them right away 
um, not to like call her out, but Olga, who was your guest at the beginning of the strike, um, she's a staff writer. Um, she's a staff writer on Cobra Kai. Uh, she is obviously so excited to be doing that job, but I, I was with her last night at this meeting and she kind of like realized in front of me, like, oh shit, I'm going to get script fees. That's like, those are big checks. I'm coming out of like four or five months of no income. And the like comfort that I saw in my friend's face, just knowing like, yes, I'm going to go work on a wildly successful show and make someone an unbelievable amount of money. The relief she felt doing like, oh, and I'm going to get like taken care of. Like I'm going to get paid appropriately. I'm going to get to participate um, when she just wasn't before for no reason at all. But we went out there and we fought and we got it and we protected someone, someone I knew personally. And so like that was there in front of me and I just felt so um, proud and inspired. I mean, you know, I'm a member of two unions and during this uh, labor action, I uh, I went to as many uh, rallies as I as I could for other unions in Los Angeles. As everyone knows, there's, there's a lot of union action in LA uh, over the spring and summer and into the fall. And um, it just felt so good every time knowing that I was uh, fighting for something I believed in that was going to help people. Those people were right in front of me. Those people were my peers and my friends. And uh, knowing that it was attainable because I was watching it happen. And especially now having, having not only feeling like I, we succeeded, we succeeded to a degree so far beyond what I thought we would get and hope for and what everyone was saying we could do. Um, it just really made, it didn't just make me believe, it made me know, like, unions save lives, unions uh, work, they just work. Um, and it feels good. And so, uh, I, I mean, I feel amazing. Like, I can't wait to get more and more involved with my union. Um, I saw so many young writers, I've, I've met so many young writers who are just getting started in their careers, who over the past few months, have gotten so involved. And I know we're going to stay involved. And I just feel like this is the start of what I was hoping for from the very beginning, which is just like more awareness, more community, more union action. Uh, I'm hoping forever. Um, and there's just no, you know, it just, it just works because the, these, our employers just can't do shit without us. They just can't do it. There's been a lot of talk about like whether IATSE is going to strike next year, if, if they can afford to um, after being out of work for all this time. Um, a lot of people are covered by IATSE and you're talking about a lot of jobs and a lot of those jobs do not pay well. Like they're, they're, they're jobs where people, they pay their rent, they pay their bills and that's, that's it. Um, the, the, the truth is though, the studios can't afford not to give them a good deal. They can't do another five month strike. IATSE will shut down all production. That's like most film workers. Um, the studios, they, this is the product they sell and they just haven't been able to sell it for almost half a year. They can't do that again right now. They just can't. They already uh, haven't been able to get back to shooting the rest of their Deadpool movie. I don't know if there are any Marvel movies in the can right now. <laughs> so um, there's just, there's just such immense strength and uh, in, in community and in, in unions. And uh, I'm just feeling great, man. I'm sure that's palpable. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I, I'm, I'm so happy for you all. Uh, very excited uh, about, the result uh and wishing you all the, the best of luck ben i really want to thank you for for joining me where can people follow you and find more of your work uh i'm at ben meckler on everything uh even the bad website twitter.com um that's b and m as in man e-k-l-e-r uh stuff i have coming out i can't talk about yet i guess and uh i 
I do have a I do have a gamer podcast. So if there are any gamers listening, uh, Mortal Podcast. That's podcast with a K. Always listen to that. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, dude. Joining me now is Dave Weigel of Semaphore. Dave, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm great. I just checked to my hotel, in, not in Disneyland, but very close to it. Uh, I'm here for the California Republican Convention. And like, it's very easy to avoid Disneyland cliches, but but hard once you get here. Uh, yeah. I'm, do, I'm doing great. Like, every everything is full of like merchandise from IP of my childhood. <laughs> and then not my childhood, really. Mickey, Mickey, not Mickey Mouse, but... There's so much Thor stuff. I had no idea. So it's an interesting location. So the debate last night was at the Reagan Library up in the Valley. But this is a, this is an evil uh, critical race theory, uh, you know, target of the culture war on the right. That's an interesting location for the, for the GOP convention, is it not? It is, although that's a theme of these debates is, is the, the war on woke. In, I would say it's over. Uh, but DeSantis just stopped talking about it. Yeah. Uh, like DeSantis just, just gave up on mentioning the word because uh, I can't say because can't read his mind, but Donald Trump started making fun of, of the word and saying that people don't know what it means. DeSantis is in disbelief. This is in June. Uh, and he, in two debates, he's never said it. Like, what was his giant cause? It just was not, it was not going over with people and not winning him anything. So he just stopped saying it. It was incredible. Like, if you told me three months ago, DeSantis is going to stop using the word woke and will never mention debate, I, w- I would have been, been doubtful. Because, uh, yeah. But the war on Disney and all that, like, they had moved on. I mean, I, there's Republicans I was talking to, uh, and I'll talk to more while I'm here, but, who want to put uh, anti-gender identity, anti-trans stuff on the ballot in 2024. That's still happening. But the, the picking a fight with every single woke corporation, that's happening less. Yeah. I mean, do you think this is DeSantis seeing that it isn't performing well or isn't landing among certain segments of the base? Or is it just Trump made fun of him and he wanted to avoid it and... He's just trying to pivot because of that. Or, I mean, what do you think it is? Maybe it's a little bit of both. Yeah, a percentage of it is Trump making fun of it and it getting into his head. But the campaign has just not figured it. It might be impossible. The campaign needs some reasons why Republican voters would say, I am tired of Trump and I, I will go for Ron DeSantis instead. They have flailed between a number of things. The consistency uh, of what they've been doing is attacking Trump from the right. And they've done two rounds of ads, online videos, but ads uh, saying that he's too pro-trans because he let trans uh, women into this universe. They've hit him for abortion. I mean, the whole pro-life movement has really hit Trump on saying that it's just politically bad to do a six-week ban. Um, That was going to be a huge component of the DeSantis campaign is that as governor of Florida, he delivered on everything conservatives wanted. Uh, and it just hasn't connected. It just ha- it hasn't that it hasn't connected with conservatives who like Trump and think he's under threat, which DeSantis and everyone else agrees with. And then, if you're not a conservative, you don't like that. This is the problem DeSantis has had in New Hampshire, especially, is that 
Republicans who just didn't want, don't want Trump back think DeSantis is too right wing. You can see this in the, I think UNH polling was the latest that Republican voters, moderates have moved to Nikki Haley or they, and they've moved away from DeSantis. So he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> that, that That's the commonality. He, he can stick to lines on stage, but he's not found any issue that is gripping people and moving them away from Trump. And the only, the only, you know, grace I'm giving here is I don't know that anyone can. The, the the best argument might be, hey, I'm more electable than Donald Trump. That is not something most Republicans believe. That's I say that's the, the best one because you don't really need to argue that much about the existence of polls or the fact that Trump lost in 2020, except if you're a Republican voter, you likely don't think he lost in 2020. So I think it's a very tough challenge that DeSantis has not stepped up to and he's tried a bunch of stuff that hasn't worked, and you can tell when a campaign is just throwing stuff uh, uh, at a at a wall and throwing spaghetti at a fan and having it spit back out at him. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's talk a bit about the debate last night. It felt a bit more flat than the first debate. The first debate, they were trying to carve out lanes for each other. Vivek was right. really aggressive in trying to get as much airtime as possible. You know, DeSantis did still do the weird facial expressions. Those carried over. But it seemed like the rest of the field really came ready to respond to Vivek Ramaswamy, who is a little bit eager, tries to take up any opportunity he can to talk, and was throwing or trading barbs, whatever you do with barbs, he was doing it uh, on the first debate. you trade them. You tra- They're like Pokemon cards, <laughs> but but mean. Yeah, they came ready to respond. I mean, there was multiple opportunities that they seized to call out his business dealings in China, which they felt would play well with their base uh, to point out how he's young, he's inexperienced. And I thought, look, as much as I don't like her, Nikki Haley's line, (laughs) she feels dumber every time he talks, was a really, really good response after his TikTok babble. Yeah, Uh, that's one thing everyone learned in the first debate is that one, they don't like Ramaswamy. They didn't need to show up to learn that, but they definitely didn't like him. Two, there's no downside in attacking him. Uh, there's a downside in attacking Trump, and I started to wonder if just the existence of these debates is bad for everyone who's not Trump because Republican voters, and whenever I say Republican voters, I mean 69, 70% of them who, who like Trump, they don't want to hear negative stuff about him. They, they, they can hear negative stuff and they think, hey, you're, ta- you're taking on the likely nominee of the party. It's the same thing that happened when anyone tried to attack Joe Biden in 2020, but intensified. And it actually helped Bernie Sanders a lot that he always ran a, a substantive policy uh, argument against Hillary Clinton. I, I remain convinced that if he just good run on the email thing, he wouldn't have done half as well in 2016 um, because Democrats liked her. They just could be, could be convinced that someone else had better ideas was more electable in this, in this race. Um, it's just not safe to attack Donald Trump because he has so much support inside the party. It's very safe to attack uh, Vivek. Just the, he has his following. He has Republican voters who've, who've heard him a few times and they like him. But what happened, he got hit from a few different directions. I mean, talking to the Santa Super PAC in uh, August, this was, they were not worried about Vivek. They thought he's going to collapse as soon as you bring up any scrutiny of things he said in the past. The recent past is not that old. And we're going to point out that he's hypocritical. They've endorsed stuff he can't defend. That happened. He got that from uh, DeSantis' campaign a little bit. He got it from Haley. He got it from a lot of people. Uh, and he had no base to stand on because he, he just showed up. Like, 
a year ago, <laughs> less than a year ago. If you're a Republican voter, you just heard of this guy a few months ago. So being convinced that this guy's a phony is, is not that hard. Being convinced that you shouldn't like Donald Trump is very hard. You've learned to love the guy over seven years. Now, to contrast, I see Rob that, here. I think yeah. he's, he's he's on the oh. way. Yeah. Hello, Rob. Hey, I've been here the whole time. Don't worry. No, I've been here the whole time, just <laughs> listening and learning. That's all. Just listening intently. Uh, just vibing. No, no. Of course, I just I like the Expos hat too. I have an Expos hat, and I was going to like the the Nats World Series game once, and tried to bring my Expos hat. And my then girlfriend was like, "Absolutely not." <laughs> and I saw like 50 Expos hats at the game. People knew what, knew what it was going to be doing. I get a yeah. lot of compliments about this hat. When I was <laughs> when I was down in New Jersey over the summer, I had multiple people come up to me and talk to me about my hat. It's something really something else. So Dave was just laying out how Trump really isn't safe for the rest of the GOP field to attack, whereas Vivek Ramaswamy is, and we saw that last night. Uh, with the exception, though, of Chris Christie, he really tried to go after Trump on multiple occasions, most notably in his epic, just fucking body slam line, calling him Donald Duck for ducking the debates. Dave, chills up your arm, maybe up your neck when you when you heard that line. (laughs) Actually, Trump had to just immediately drop out of the race (laughs) afterwards. He immediately quit. It was just too devastating. There's no way to recover from it. No way. Every time he he closes his eyes, he sees the John Oliver's drumpf sign on his <laughs> eyelids. Yeah. No, he did not. I don't think he got that owned by that. I was supposed to say, I think it's, it's well known by now that reporters are not usually in the room for these debates. We're in a separate area. We literally were in a tent next to Ronald Reagan's body. Like, because Ronald Reagan and Nancy <laughs> Reagan are buried at the Reagan Library outside overlooking Simi Valley, and the tent was next to that. Not, like, on top of it. Not, like... <laughs> poltergeist or something but 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 <laughs> talking about reagan's corpse could probably run reagan's corpse and he'd probably pull better than most of these jokers i mean he would have i think i think he, that the corpse would lose to trump at this point it wouldn't have 2016 but it would now um but we're not in the room so we can't hear their vibes we can we can hear what happened in our room it was kind of a groan in the press room press tent and then when you check people afterwards every campaign was like yeah that didn't really land um D- Donald Duck in seven years after he got, after he got into politics. Okay, good luck with this. Uh, like everyone's getting very cynical about about what might work. It's funny because like when he started, he was looking right in the camera and he was doing this whole thing. Like Donald, I know you're watching right now. I know you can't resist. You know you're too afraid to show up. And I was kind of like, oh yeah, that, that's kind of working for me. He's maybe cooking something here. Like let's let's listen to what you have to say, and then that's no. a good setup. Mm-hmm. And then just fell so flat. That's the thing. Like if he left that out, it would have been like a solid wrestling promo. It was so great too. He did that yeah. face after that insta- instantly iconic face. He looked like that Kevin James I mean, yeah. meme or like <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield or something. Hey, I don't know who's trying to avoid me more, Donald Trump or my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I was on another show today where they just. They did a freeze frame of that face that stayed on the screen for like an hour. So it was just, it was just in front of me the whole time. And then I got to like it. You know, you look at something long enough and you, he is he is a good p- performer. He, he definitely, this campaign is a suicide mission. I think everybody knows it. Uh, but his lands did land better than Mike Pence. I mean, the, I think the most awkward moment for everyone was Mike Pence has a line that I've seen him deliver in, in, in speeches where he says, you know, I've been sleeping with a teacher for 28 years. Like the, the thing he always says, but the way he walked up to it after Christie's line 
he just doesn't have the same panache. He's the he's the guy you know he's the he's the the guy they give a couple minutes to who's introducing the other comics. He just doesn't have the, he doesn't have the chops yet. Doesn't have a type five. Um, and Christie has a type type fifteen. He's great. You know some of that stuff. You know talking about sleeping with the teacher and stuff. I think that's a little blue for Mike Pence. I thought that was pushing it. That was taking it a bit far. <laughs> I thought Pence after dark. It's yeah. the aristocrats. What are you talking about? <laughs> Pence does like the dramatic, like the squint, and then kind of like move to the side to see if you get it. Uh, like I've seen, I've seen him do this a lot. And let's show some respect for Mike Pence. The the guy who yelled at him in Iowa, saying "Get out of the country," and cursing cursing a bunch of stuff as he was leaving the room. And Pence going, "I'm going to put him down." Was undecided. That was great. That was That's a good, good line. That was quick. Yeah. Uh, so he not as fast on the debate stage. So they opened. Uh, the debate talking about the UAW strike and talking about how the candidates feel about it, whether or not they support the workers, why they're striking. And we've seen this excuse or justification uh, for why Republicans, why even conservative media figures, especially on Fox, kind they, they kind of posture as supporting the workers but ultimately blame it on the cost of living ultimately blame it on inflation and then biden and then within that evs green policy that kind of stuff they'll never explicitly call out uh the big three executives or the big three like the, the companies themselves and we saw that last night dave i mean could you talk about how because ju- even just juxtaposed with the first debate they opened with that oliver anthony song and why that was the number one song in the country. They're trying to lean into this economic message. Definitely sets them up for inflation commentary, but why are they trying to pretend? Why are they opening these debates with seemingly somewhat populist commentary? It's the realignment we keep hearing so much about. Yeah, there there has been a real realignment. Uh, It kind of halted in 2020 and 2022, but... A lot. And Ohio is a good example. Like Ohio moved a lot between 2012 and 2016, and then it basically stuck in place the last two elections. But there is this realignment of working class whites, mostly some working class Hispanics, very few working class black men, especially um, that just don't really agree with the Democratic Party in anything, but uh, voted for them for the if they're in a party in the a member of a union. The union the union recommended it. Um, they had economic policies they agreed the Democrats on. I think what reversed some of that or froze it is that tr- just Biden abandoned the the trade neoliberalism that, that Clinton and Obama had had embraced that that really severed the relationship. And what what Biden did uh, was stick to that trade policy, one that he he, he he's you know in retrospect it's easy to be a genius, but he kind of said he would have run on it he run twenty sixteen. And then just shovel lots of money to the auto industry and to, and to manufacturing to build stuff in America. Like it, he's doing both what I mean, he's doing a lot of what Bernie ran on in 2016. Not a lot, not not healthcare, but in terms of populism and putting money into clean energy, it is something that people have wanted to do forever. And what Republicans need to argue is that this is all a trap. Uh, this is all about killing your job. Um, they're trying to resurrect what worked pretty good against Hillary was because Hillary would talk about uh, closing down coal mines and not really explain what the solution was, what would happen to the next. Biden never talks about about uh, replacing jobs at all. Everything he talks about is plus. Is yes, you're building gas cars and now you're going to be building more electric vehicles. And what they need to do, Republicans, 
is convince people that it, this is all actually going to backfire and going to kill your job. So there, that realignment um, of saying that we are the real populists because we're not going to meddle with your industry. That's what they're trying to do. Um, it's coupled though with like no other populism. It's coupled with, and we're going to extend tax cuts uh, and we're going to let child tax credit expire. I, I, mean, I don't need to lecture you guys on this stuff. You know it. Um, but they're kind of sticking to what Trump ran on in 2016 and not acknowledging that Bi- I think Biden did change their ability to, to exploit that. It's always kind of amusing for me seeing Republicans or conservatives really trying to walk this line of, of right-wing economic populism and kind of trying to suggest that they, they're going to stand up for working-class people while basically promoting economic policies. I mean, we talk about zombie Reagan basically just promoting economic policies that amount to uh, giving those working class people's boss a tax cut, you know, and you see people like, you know, this is uh, not necessarily someone that's running, but Josh, someone like Josh Howley is, uh, you know, trying to kind of walk that line, trying to walk, walk up to the point where he says that he supports these uh, striking auto workers while not really ever really supporting unions in the past, supporting like right to work legislation mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. It's interesting to see them try and uh, try and walk this line. It's it's amazing to me that anyone buys it really. Yeah. I mean, Doug Burgum didn't get a lot of time, but he, he and other interviews this week articulated it, I think better than anyone on stage because they all kind of whiffed it, which is, Hey, we want everyone to make a lot of money. We want the working class people to make as much as possible. But unions are bad, and they're tools of the Democratic Party, and they're corrupt. I mean, there you know there was a giant UAW corruption scandal before Fain took over, uh, and so TBD how we get there. But like, we're going to be populist, but we don't need unions to do it, and that's obviously not very convincing to anyone in a union, really. But th- that's where they're trying to take this. I don't think they, they took it very far last night. It was really amazing. I, I saw the comments from that Obama advisor guy or consultant or whatever that was like mad about Biden going to going to visit the, the UAW picket line. That was really amazing stuff. Oh, Stephen Ratner. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's just incredible to me. And, you know, Biden, who styles himself as being like the most pro-union president ever, like it seems to me like it's just a... The absolute bare minimum to go and actually see these workers and be, mm. appear in the picket line like Bernie did. Uh, so it's amazing that it's so controversial. I mean, you look at how it's polling, um, overwhelming support for these uh, striking auto workers. If you're one of these like Democratic Party consultants, you you would think that's like, oh, that's a no brainer. That's an easy victory to go yeah. and and attach ourselves to that. So it's just so funny. It speaks to how low the bar is that. Uh, that's all really Biden had to do, and it's amazing that all of these all of these people were were hemming and hawing about it and wringing their hands. Yeah, and then Stephen Ratner, who I, I think it, even Malcolm Gladwell of all people pointed out that he has taken a lot of credit for the auto rescue, and he, he showed up and he was there for it, but it, it wasn't really him doing all of it. Uh, but I, one of his one of his worries was, oh, in the sense of precedent, they'll show up more of him. I don't think there's any strike that's less popular than Joe Biden. Joe Biden's popularity is in the 40s on a good day. Uh, abortion rights are more popular than that. The UAW strike is more popular than that. The writer strike, SAG Astra, they're more popular than that. Than, than that, they, they're and they're not. They don't have partisan popularity. They have. You were just saying it. There's a lot of Republicans who say like, "Well, I would never vote for the uh, for the Democrats." Ben Shapiro told me not to. But yeah, like 
David Zaslav sucks. Um, like the Mary Barra sucks. Like I'm, I'm, I'm angry at the way they're exploiting workers. They're, they're, they're not, they're, that is broader appeal. Uh, I think the Republican attempts to become more populist acknowledge that there's broader appeal than just, Hey, I'm from the democratic party. The democratic party's brand and what they're identified with is pretty lousy. It, it, I think there, if there, there's some downside I've not thought of by, by a president showing up to these, these pickets, but I don't see one in the polling right now. People really love anyone who associates themselves with these protests with the, I should say with these pickets, with these strikes. Now, at the same time, Trump skipped the debate to go to Detroit to speak to a non-union factory. And he tried to frame this as, oh, I'm also going to stand with auto workers. And unlike past, you know, competing events that Trump has tried to pull, you know, I think the last debate he did an interview with Tucker, I felt like that got more attention and more traction than last night. Maybe that's just because Tucker's show is online, but I'm sure like they're, you know, right side broadcasting, like the very pro Trump YouTube channel covered it and you'll see clips, I'm sure on Newsmax, but it didn't feel like it made as much of a splash, but it shows that he also is trying to take a, uh, you know, find opportunity in the strike and leverage it for his political gain. I mean, did you hear anything uh, even in like the spin room from other candidates? Were they acknowledging that? Do they feel like they also should be, you know, heading out there or doing anything in in support of of striking workers? No, that's a really good question. Uh, We kind of asked all week what they thought, what they would do. And this surprised, I think, some people in the spin room, me included, just Stuart Varney uh, and Dana Perino are not big pro-labor commentators on Fox Business. Uh, but this was the most interesting thing they could ask these candidates if they if they supported the workers and yeah none of them had the plan to um, the the most populist candidate in in the race when it comes to just being willing to show up and and have workers cheer for him is is Donald Trump uh, not by said by workers because a lot of people screwed this up it was not striking workers that he spoke to but it was people who have like worked in the auto industry who showed up to this rally in addition to just Republicans who like to go to Trump rallies. Uh, no other candidate is interested in in getting there. What they all did uh, all week and a little bit at the debate, although less than I thought, is say, yeah, well, the problem here is uh, electric vehicles and we need to stop electric vehicle mandates. And once we do that, we're going to have these jobs for good. I mean, Ron DeSantis, I think who didn't even get this question last night, had said in Iowa, uh, one of the uh, KCCI in Iowa, uh, like, I'm going to save the American automobile. Like, And the American automobile equals uh, – you know, combustion engine. We're going to save that car. And you talk to anyone <laughs> in, in the auto industry, like, what, can you replace every car with electric car right now? You cannot. Like, I'm staying at a hotel. I have a plug-in hybrid, and the um, one of the three chargers is not working. That's kind of lame. It's like easier to gas a car. But if you are trying to sell cars to the rest of the world, and you're just like, we're doing gas forever. We're never going to change that. You're going to just sell fewer cars to your, you know, the eurozone, uh, to Asia than if you have like. Well, you we also have this electric car that you can buy for your short distances uh, in 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 your downtown. We also will have the option of like an electric car that competes with Elon Musk and competes with the Chinese. That's that that's one of the big gaps between the way Republicans talk and then if you cover these industries, what's happening in the industries. Which is, I don't want to go too far that that tangent, but that was one thing that was that that does get frustrating about. Um, Republican campaign promises is 
you don't hear from anyone who would be affected by them, really. It's just it's just rhetoric, just how you get into the conversation as a Trump alternative. And if you actually follow up and say, hey, person who works in healthcare, does this plan make sense? Person who works in at Ford, does this plan make sense? None of them have actually come up with stuff that makes um, that is compelling to people that competes with Trump. I, not, not that I've seen. I mean, I, I, this is a year of this campaign now. I've not seen anyone really do it. Yeah, I mean, you talked about China, and I think that's a really interesting angle to this. The fact that over the last couple of years, China has risen to become the, the top global manufacturer of EVs. So it's it's funny to think of these like right-wing populists that are just planning on, I guess, just abandoning that entire industry. Like you would think that would be somewhere where America would want to compete in these global markets. You know, if you're one of these patriotic right-wing guys, capitalists, you'd think you would encourage that. But I don't know. This is this. It, this is just the incoherence of this kind of <laughs> economic populism. It's like, no, no, let's yeah. just completely give up uh, because EVs are are woke and soy or whatever it is. So we'll just completely abandon that and and allow allow China and others to just completely uh, take over that market. Yeah, it would also it would be if you did it if if you just got rid of all the EV subsidies and credits in January twenty twenty five, you would wreck a lot of uh, supply plans that these companies have. So uh, I think that's starting to get a little bit. I, I think the, the, this Trump visit, you were, um, you guys were saying how you didn't get the same poll as the Tucker interview. I don't think it did. I actually think it, it had more of a backfire than anything he's done recently because to explain what he was doing, if you're writing a normal story about it, you, uh, and a lot of people got it wrong, but they had to correct it, you had to explain what was happening in the strike. You had to explain the Biden position. You would explain the, the Trump policy, which he explained in the speech. And it boils down to just one candidate showed up at a, at a right, you know, a closed shop. Um, sorry, it's an open shop. Uh, he showed up, showed up a non-union shop uh, with right to work activists <laughs> saying that he was going to cancel these credits that the, that the auto industry is counting on to uh, build a lot of stuff. And the Biden position was not that. The Biden position was showing up and saying workers should get paid a lot more. I mean, this didn't happen on stage, but Nikki Haley, who I think had Haley and Scott both had very weird answers on this. Not weird, but like traditional South Carolina right to work Republican answers. Haley just said, like, I think a lot of taxpayers would love to have a 40 percent raise. And uh, Scott said four weeks, four days a week is a French style work week. Um, Being a politician is pretty easy. Uh, like if you're a senator, you don't have a four hour, four day work week. You have like a month off in the summer. You have meetings and stuff, but you don't need to show up to work that often. Half so of these that, guys are that, drunk at work all day. They're having three scotches at lunch. Seems like a really easy job, actually. Yeah, but just like putting Joe Biden in the position of this guy wants to people to make a ton more money and have more time off. I don't know if you take that a couple more steps. Is that really the best argument? Like this guy is an 80 years old and could fall down. I think is a better, more compelling argument than this guy wants you to make a ton more money. <laughs> I don't know where they're trying to get. We this. want you to work longer hours for less money. That's our that's our plan. Yeah, who doesn't want that? Like, why did all these all, all these people buy crypto like for a year and a half? It was like, well, maybe this is my ticket out of my hell, hellish job with not enough money. Like, if you say like, hey. I want you to get paid a lot more. Biden's problem is that because of inflation, people don't believe that he did it. But that is the priority. And the Republican priority is, is like, well, free market, we're going to create more jobs. But when they get into how workers should not be asking for such big raises and get so much time off, I don't know where that who that convinces to say I was going to vote for a Democrat. But but now that you want me to work harder for less money, dang, <laughs> tell me more. Yeah. And that, I mean, there's their kind of foolishness, their 
reckless answers, them missing these opportunities or taking strange positions on things that we can recognize as, you know, popular among among the base, that's exemplified in the polling. I mean, you mm-hmm. you and I talked before we started recording, it's just kind of like, what are we doing here? Like, These are all people who are vying for, at best, vice president, maybe a cabinet position, but most of them will just go back to doing whatever they were doing, appearing on Fox News. I'm sure some of them will start, you know, some sort of political operation and just make money that way or write a book. Like, what are we really doing here? <laughs> yeah, um, it- there are people who are running. I mean, I, I talked to Asa Hutchinson, who makes the debate stage. I was at a conference last week uh, where I did like a live interview with him on stage, and it's interesting. He, but it is some. He's more in, in, in the pundit candidate zone, where he is trying to argue for how the party should behave and how it should react to Donald Trump, but the people aren't really listening. Uh, Larry Elder, um, the Perry John, like the people who didn't are not making these debates are just showing up to get on TV. Uh, like, I don't want to cast aspersions on them, but that's what they've been doing. Like, they're not building huge organizations in these states. Will Hurd is is very good on TV, but that's what he's doing. And so the candidates who made it on stage and are running for president um, against Trump, none of them have a strategy right now to beat him. Um, they are, I think, yeah, you said it, position themselves where I, I don't think Doug Burgum would be in the cabinet conversation just because this is, like, unfair because people don't think about North Dakota very much. <laughs> the very people live there. It's cold. Reporters don't like to go there. Uh, like, Doug Burgum is in the conversation. I think Vivek Ramaswamy is in the conversation to be in a cabinet. Or, I mean, he mentioned his company, Strive, during the debate. If I'm with Vivek Ramaswamy and this crashes, uh, I still have the most famous anti-woke investment company, right? I still can go after this, after this uh, thing is over, after my race is over, and say, Hey, governor of Red State, if you want to move your money from BlackRock to pensions, from BlackRock to Strive, uh, you've seen me on TV. I'm like, I'm the guy who runs this company. I can do it. I think that's um, because I don't like to cast aspersions on some of these candidates, but some are sincere. Like I, Chris Christie, I do think is sincere in that he thinks Trump is a, is a nightmare. He doesn't look back at, in the White House um, and would love to beat him. But in the but the guys who are not, there are more candidates running, I think, to get attention than running to to beat Trump at this point. Um, and maybe they started out thinking there's a way to beat Trump, but they're, they're getting a little limited in what their options are. They're, 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 nothing that you do if you attack him works because most Republicans don't want you to attack him. Like that's, 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 I don't know other way out of this box. <laughs> like it's a very tough problem to have when you're running against a guy who 70% of Republican voters say they like, I don't know, that guy usually man- manages to win. <laughs> it, uh, for I don't want to repeat what we were saying in the first part of this, but but there are the arguments you could make that I am more electable than him or whatever, or I'm better on some issues that you want to be implemented. Those just aren't clicking. Um, and we're people are going to spend a lot of money in Iowa to like try to make it click, but I, I I think we're we've this last few weeks was the period where people in the press and the campaign said what actually is the strategy to not lose this thing, and it's not clear. It's not clear at all. I mean, it seems to me the strategy for a lot of these people is just let's hold out until maybe Trump gets indicted or arrested or goes to jail and just right. can't run in the election. And then that kind of you see if, they, if they're not attacking him, then if that does happen, they can pull this whole, oh, you know, the poor you know, the, mm-hmm. the frame him as some martyr. And oh, when I'm in power, I'm going to be able to overturn this injustice and all that. But it really does seem like that's what a lot of these people were counting on. You know, we're just going to hang on. 
one of these multiple indictments is going to finally stick or lead to some kind of real consequences, then that's going to be my moment. I'm going to be able to slide in there. Yeah, I mean, they definitely thought that would happen six months ago more than they think it would happen now. Because I remember talking to um, candidates in March when Trump posted that he was going to get indicted in New York. And this is the first one, the uh, Alvin Bragg indictment. And and there was a sense in the campaigns, boy, we don't know how this will shake out. If if I mean, I think it's fair in, in 2016, if Hillary Clinton was literally just indicted in the summer of 2015, I think Joe Biden would have gotten the race. I think Bernie would, Bernie would have stayed in. Maybe a couple more Democrats would have got. They would have reacted by saying, oh, this is a problem that you can't win the election. We're, we really hope this just goes away. And once it became clear that Trump would keep getting indicted and not drop out and not get hurt, it became, I mean, Hutchinson, again, not on stage, but just I talked to him, said he really does think that the 14th Amendment argument could keep Trump off the ballot if Trump is convicted in Georgia of, in, of trying to overturn the election. He thinks constitutionally that could get tested, get to the Supreme Court, and he would be, not be qualified. But at that point, you are talking about one weird trick. Um, I don't want to compare it to birtherism, but I remember talking to people in 2016 who were, the argument was, oh, well, according to the Constitution, Obama's not a natural-born citizen. So if we, and this was like the Puma pro-Hillary people, if we get a judge to agree that Obama is not qualified to be president, we're, we're, I mean, I it's, to people like succession references still, it all reminds me of like of, of Kendall in, in the boardroom after he's lost the vote, just kind of babbling and trying to get something together. They're at that point of the, of okay. This. Yes. We should uh, reschedule or, uh, yeah, yeah, that kind uh, of thing. Like, uh, they're just, and they, th- they thought, I mean, like Kendall, <laughs> they, they thought there were a way to win this normally before that. But yeah, there's a. I'd say there's a little bit of a mindset that he could still be so in trouble that he can't possibly win the nomination, uh, and or sorry, would be the nominee, win the election. Um, they just don't know what would it take at this point because they thought that would they thought one of these four indictments was going to do it, and they just they just didn't. Their base says no, that's all fake. We talk about this crop of Republican candidates and about how you know if you total all of them up, they still wouldn't even amount to uh, a real sort of competition with Trump currently in terms of the polling. But I mean, after a certain point, shouldn't this be making uh, people in the Democratic Party a little bit nervous? The fact that despite yeah. all of these uh, indictments and this this constant stream of news stories about Trump's uh, legal problems, and still you see him just a little over a year out to this thing, polling even or ahead of Biden in some polls. So it just seems like I don't know if People yeah. around the party are starting to take that seriously, but that seems to be something that they might want to start uh, uh, thinking about and thinking about why that's happening. And uh, I, I imagine there's people close to the party that should be freaking out about it. But is like, is that happening? The Democrats are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They really don't want to talk about it. Um, like, there's this, there's a sort of Democrat who who will say off the record that they're very worried about this. What really bailed Biden out. Uh, was the midterms going so well? Uh, there is an idea here that so I do, and I was talking to Democrats in October 2022 who were they weren't ready to announce for president, but they were very ready to talk openly about how we need to move on from Biden if it was like a nightmare election where de- Democrats lost 50 seats, and that didn't happen. So both uh, the space shrunk and went away, and they wondered, okay, is there actually a majority of the country that does want to vote for this guy, but is going to tell people in polls, I don't want to. 
Um, Because that's kind of what this year, um, every special election that's happened has gone pretty good, pretty well for Democrats compared to the last one. They flipped a bunch of seats. I think we're going to have this election in Virginia uh, in five weeks. Early voting is already underway. But we're going to get another test in November. All right. So all the polling says Biden is doing terribly. But if if we won a bunch of things, doesn't doesn't it look like the the Trump Republican Party is too is too unpopular to, to beat him? And there are Democrats who say even if they nominated Haley, the, their options were not Trump. Haley and DeSantis pulling the best uh, are really right wing and just have abandoned the populism that that, that Trump succeeds with. Like they. They are on record for, in DeSantis' case, a really unpopular abortion position uh, for raising the Social Security retirement age, as is Haley. Haley had the speech last week, which didn't really come up, where she talked about raising the retirement age for everyone under 40 um, and for like all just sorts of stuff that Democrats know how to run against. So they're, they, it's be, they're, they really only are worried about how old Joe Biden is. They're not even worried about the Hunter stuff. Just he looks old. He is old. He, he falls down sometimes. It's easy to find him looking lost and or like screwing up a speech. That's it. There's no other Biden electability issue they talk about. And so that is why this is so weird. It's it's like, well, every day he is older and every day there's more risk there. But also every day Republicans get closer to nominating somebody unpopular. So it's just this this collision of like how bad how 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 bad can we um can this other side get? Uh, and how much can Joe Biden look like a competent president who could li- who live for another four years? That's that's really it. Like every week we talk about other stuff, but that is that is the issue. This guy is old. He is extremely fucking old. That's true. The delicate balance. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dave, we want to thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your time and your analysis. Where can people follow you and find more of your work? Uh, you can follow me at Semaphore, which is S E M. AFOR.com. I have a newsletter called Americana that comes out twice a week. Uh, and I write whenever else there's news. And uh, I'm on Twitter less than I used to be. I'm on Blue Sky more than I used to be, which I kind of like. I, I post articles and stuff there. But I'd say those are the those are the main, main places. To, if, if you want to see what I'm doing, those are the places to follow me. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. No, it was awesome. I'm glad we could talk about it. And hello, hello again from Disney World. Disneyland. <laughs> Sorry. Dang it. <laughs>